1: episode of the flow line Matt how are you doing today not too bad awesome I'm doing pretty good myself hey a quick reminder for everyone out there hit up YouTube and check out aES tech, uh, tech tips uh, we've got one on viscosity and also one on es and we're hoping to uh you know more regularly pump those out um you know they're they're a little uh time consuming to do but either way they're great topics and helps, uh give everyone an, just a brief idea on certain technical topics and tips that we'd like uh you know to share with everybody and they're always out there so if you're on a rig or you know behind your desk and uh you want to know about you know either es or viscosity aside from what we've discussed on the podcast uh check them out there's some really interesting graphics that kind of help tie everything together and uh so matt's done a great job with him and his team putting those together so take a look like i said you can find them on youtube and uh, if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and do us a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to any feedback uh certainly appreciated and welcome and if you have any good stories or even uh you know ideas for a show let us know. Uh Matt I wanted to you had something to mention to everybody so why don't you go ahead.
2: Yes, uh I have a plug for everyone. Uh yeah. you know when we have conversations I always I, well I think I always but I believe I frequently allude to technical papers and just People I've learned a lot from. Um, and the AAD Fluids Conference is coming up uh, April 14th and 15th of next year. Now, that's a ways off, um, but it's a really great conference where you get to meet a lot of fluids experts and hear a lot of papers. Mm-hmm. And if you have some ideas for a paper yourself, the call for abstracts is, r- is open right now. So it closes September 25th, but um, in essence, you write a couple hundred words. The specifics are at AADE.org. For your paper, they can be case histories. There's a whole list of different kind of topics, not just drilling fluids, cementing, fracturing fluids, stimulation fluids. So kind of, kind of the, whole, the whole broad swath. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, you could get a chance to author a paper, share your knowledge. Um, and so it's just a great way to contribute further to the industry. I'm on the committee and definitely very excited about it. And we're, we're working on all our abstracts right now. But uh, I just want to give everybody a heads up if uh, that's something they might be thinking about.
1: Very cool. And who can anyone do that, or do you need some sort of credibility? I mean, what, what does the uh, filter look like, or is, is it open to anybody?
2: So the abstracts, uh, it really is open to anyone. So you, you submit the abstract, and you know, the, the main expectation is that you'd be available to present or somebody on your team, if you co-author, which a few people, which most people use multiple authors, mm-hmm. um, that someone's available to go to the conference and present. Uh, which the conference will be in Houston, downtown, at the Marriott Marquis. Um, so it's it's somewhat accessible. It's just more so, um, you know, you're, there's no guarantee your abstract will be accepted, but you submit it. If it's, if it's something interesting and exciting, uh, then you'll be contacted, I think, around in November. They'll let you know whether you got accepted or not. If you get accepted, then you write your paper and you prepare your presentation. You get about 20 minutes to present. Um, And people ask you questions. Cool. Um, No,
1: that's a a really neat opportunity. Well, uh, yeah, certainly if anyone's interested, go, you said AAD website, right?
2: AAD.org. Or, I mean, reach out to me if you have any other specific questions. Cool. Um, I'll get you to the right people. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. Um, You know, I was actually thinking about Brian's uh, the other day,
1: and I had someone the other day actually ask me, Uh, about, you know, potentially trying brine in an area where historically it's been oil-based mud. So I thought we could cover the different types of brines and, you know, when the the right application actually presents itself. So Matt, what do you think? Are you ready to hit that topic today? Let's do it. Awesome. Well, Matt, why don't you go ahead and describe what, uh, you know, let's start with the basics. What is a brine? And then we'll go from there.
2: So a brine is, you know, as we use it in the oil field, it's salt and water, but those salts can vary. Um, and most of the time, we're using these. You know, we can use them for drilling. We can use them in completion fluids. Um, so they provide uh, in, in completion applications, for example, they provide density because these brines can get quite heavy. They can so it's solids-free mm-hmm. weight that you could get uh, almost twenty pounds per gallon in a clear brine fluid if you're willing to pay for it. Right. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, you know, we use brines regularly in drilling fluids. Sometimes it's just for a little bit of shale inhibition. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have put, you know, 3%, 4% KCL in a fluid just to, to inhibit uh, a reactive shale. Um, and then, you know, to your description, it can be that osmotic exchange that we, we've talked about in the past where um, there are some parts of the world where if you have, uh, you could actually dehydrate the formation, embrittle it, and you can actually drill pretty fast, hmm. um, assuming that your well remained stable and all those, but like. The Montney shale, the Duvernay, those are uh, prime candidates for that, that sort of thing, where you drill with just a clear brine fluid, um, but it actually can drill faster than the oil-based mud with, uh, you know, the right exchange. Hmm. Very interesting.
1: So uh, what kind of, you know, we talked, you talked about densities and weights, and, you know, typically in, in a drilling fluids, you would add weighting material, either hematite or barite, barite being the most common. Uh, different brines actually offer different densities. So why don't you go ahead and talk about the different salts and how that kind of works?
2: Sure. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of salt that's soluble in a certain amount of water. Um, and so eventually you'll reach a point where you can't add any more salt. The water won't take it and the salt will fall out. And some of that's dependent on temperature, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but some of that is dependent upon, um, well, it is dependent on temperature. Um, but you know, you could have, for example, potassium chloride will, we we'll call it, saturate out at kind of ambient conditions at about 9.7 pounds per gallon. But you can use other salts, you know, sodium chloride, which we use a lot, saturates at about 10 pounds per gallon. Um, and you kind of work your way up from there. Okay. <coughs> um, excuse me. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, but, but there's, a, there's a wide swath of of different brines, um, and many times if I'm achieving a solids-free density, for example, in a completion, much of my driver on my brine selection is going to be driven by the density I can achieve. So, um, uh, you know, some of the more expensive, like sodium bromide, can get up to 12.5 pounds per gallon. Uh, calcium bromide, 14.2. Mm. Now you're in it at higher temperatures, that can change. There's, there's also some, some technology out there that enhances the solubility of salt where it crystallizes. Okay. Um, so you can actually get higher densities than that as well. Um, there's, there's trade-offs with that, but it's, uh, it's kind of goes against convention. It's a fairly new concept. Um, and you can work your way all the, all the way up to, um, you know, people hear about zinc bromide, which is very heavy. It's the stock brine that, that is offered is about nine point, 19.2 pounds per gallon. um, and cesium formate is another one that is, gets real, real heavy. Hmm. Um, uh, about the same or even a little heavier. Um, although these brines get way more expensive as you go up in density. Right. Um, now,
1: in, is that just because of the um, it's not as readily available? Or what makes these brines typically so expensive?
2: A lot of it is, is availability. So cesium is a pretty rare element. Okay. Um and and mine so cesium formate is so rare that um you don't actually buy this brine you rent it hmm. from most suppliers. And uh I've seen I've seen bids where customers would actually put out, you know, whoever can minimize waste the most, have the most efficient um displacement of fluid that they get the work because the brine is so extremely expensive relative to everything else. Yeah, They just want to minimize any cost associated with that. Makes um, sense. But, uh, you know, there's, there's different... Um, you know, calcium chloride's one that, it goes up to about 11.6, and calcium chloride's relatively cheap, mm-hmm. uh, relatively. Um, so, you know, that one tends to be an attractive one. People try and work, in, work into the equation. Um, and then there's a, there's a few others. You know, you know, a lot of stimulation folks might deal with ammonium chloride. Um, you got to watch your pH, like with acid jobs, it's fine because the pH is low, but if it goes up, you can actually release ammonia, right. which is something we don't want to do. <laughs> um, every once in a while you hear of a brine like potassium carbonate, which can precipitate some calcium carbonate. So there's some reluctance there in the completion side of things. I've drilled with flu- a potassium sulfate fluid. We weren't allowed to have chlorides, but we wanted some shale inhibition. Mm-hmm. So, um, we use that potassium ion there. Um, yeah. Potassium acetate is another really common one, as a shale inhibitor additive. Right. Um, so they're kind of all over the place as far as density. Um, but to tie back to why you know, why do we have all these brines, um, crystallization is part of that conversation. So there's, there's something called the true crystallization temperature, or TCT. Okay. Yeah. And if you think about it, um, I put salt into solution. And I keep adding salt, and I keep adding salt, and eventually it saturates, and I have salt crystals on the bottom of my container, right? And then there's the part where I could have salt that's perfectly in solution, but I chill the container, and crystals start to form on the bottom of it. And it could be because I've altered the freezing point. It, it could be, you know, just the solubility of the salt. Mm. Um, there's, there's these curves TCT curves where you can kind of see where this event takes place where it crystallizes and what temperature that is interesting um, and so that's why these values where you say I can get calcium bromide at 142 well I could get it in a hot weather environment I could probably get up to 146 um it's just salt might fall out which if I'm in a solids free environment that would be a serious problem no kidding um and similarly uh in deep water we have we take it a step further you're offshore, it's cold. Um, you also put pressure on these brines, and you can compress the water. And so per unit volume, there's a lot of salt and not enough water. Well, you mm. can have what's called a pressure crystallization temperature event, or a PCT event. Mm. So that can be a problem. And, and a lot of those, so you'll actually have a brine that's rated to a certain PCT, um, and it's, it's normally rated to whatever they're going to test the BOPs at. But um, you know, offshore, that could be 15,000 PSI. You know, it could, it could be pretty high. That's yeah. Yeah. And you don't typically see that on land. Eh? No. Um, it, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that drives us on land is, is weather. Um, and once again, we're talking about completion operations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might select a brine just simply because I expected to get a certain cold temperature. Um, there's, uh, you know, but, but density is probably the biggest driver. Gotcha. Um, you know otherwise on the brine side of things, there are there are some properties, there's certain treatments that some of these brines like better than others. Yeah.
1: Well, um, before we get onto the treatment side, I mean, I, I was curious about the inhibition side of it too. I mean, oh, yeah. so how, how does, uh, you know, for the folks out there who may not be familiar, like how does the salt within the system actually interact with the rock? Because when you're drilling with a salt, I mean, like a freshwater system is not very inhibitive unless you add some things, but you know, for the most part, most folks, you know, you once you start introducing potassium or you know other forms of salt, uh, that really inhibits the shale from swelling. So, what, what's the what's happening chemically, or from a chemistry standpoint, how is that working?
2: So, what happens is you've got think about a, a clay platelet, Think about two clay platelets. You know, oversimplified as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And when clay swells, it's because water got in between those two plates and got them to separate or expand, fan out, perhaps. Right. So there's normally, there could be a sodium or a calcium or, or a, a calcium ion or, or something in there. And if I can exchange that, for example, for potassium, um, let's say, and uh, I, I swap it for sodium, I can actually narrow the distance between those two plates. Hmm. Um, and so what happens is it gets tight enough that the water can't get in. Uh-huh. And that's fundamentally where salt offers inhibition. The trick is that, um, you know, a lot of these, for example, we keep KCL in the system. We need to make sure we have enough KCL because this effect is reversible. Right. So, you know, this is if anybody's ever run a KCL system and had to have the potassium ion test kit and track it and
1: right. keep adding more. That potassium depletes as you're
2: drilling. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's that's an important element of, of how you get that inhibition to work. Hmm. Um, and so it's just having enough of those ions around, um, and, and as we've seen, you know, sometimes just a little bit of KCL or e- even sodium chloride can go a long way. Right. Uh, formate brines, there's so, sodium and potassium formate. They can be very inhibitive. Um, y- you know, calcium ions are actually pretty good. Um, there, there's kind of a series of, of affinities that these, uh, um, ions have. And I, th- I think it's tied to their ionic radius, although I could be totally wrong on that. Um, <laughs> There is a there's a guy who who um of course his name defies me right now, but has just did tons of research on this and has a whole hierarchy of of inhibition and, and that sort of thing. And um hmm. it's it's pretty interesting. Um but all that being said, that's that's kind of the mechanism.
1: Gotcha. So when, you know, let's fast forward a little bit and we mentioned uh, you know, making potassium additions to maintain a certain concentration. Um you know, from a property standpoint, what do we typically see? I mean, when we're drilling with a brine, ideally we'd like to have it solids-free, right? Yeah. But you still need some sort of body, um, you know, and, and you know, perhaps fluid loss or perhaps, you know, viscosity. What kind of uh, chemicals are typically added to a brine-based system?
2: So uh, the question is, it depends, or the answer is it depends because, for example, monovalent brines, your formates, your potassium, chloride. Those ones are compatible with xanthan gum, for example, so I can use that for viscosity, which is great because we have that stuff sitting around.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: When it comes to calcium chloride and calcium bromide, and zinc bromide for that matter, um, at, at higher levels, they're not compatible with zinc. Mm. So it could be at a 9.5 calcium chloride, I could use some xanthan and be fine. If I want to do that 11.6 density, it won't work because the xanthan won't tolerate that level of calcium. Interesting. Um, and so there are other viscosifiers um, there's a bit in the market on you know, hey, we have a divalent compatible viscosifier that works really well. Um, there are a couple out there. Um, you can probably tell by my hesitation how satisfied I have been with <laughs> using them in the past. Um, so it's it's a bit of a, a frustrating deal from that perspective. Although once again, that's when you're at saturation. If you're doing a big completion job, um, you know. But typically, if we're you know, we just got a little bit of salt in there. It doesn't affect us. And, and similarly with starch, uh, if we're ty- trying to tighten up the fluid loss, um, there are starches that can be modified to be more salt compatible. Right. Um, so there's there's definitely a product selection component to that. Um, but it, it sounds to me like, you know, it's, it's you know, just through talking
1: now, it's, it doesn't really appear that having, you know, a certain viscosity and a certain fluid loss, I mean, typically when running a brine, you're not generally concerned about those where in a regular water-based mud system, those are extremely important. Um, and so I would imagine being that the, you know, the the the, uh, the base fluid itself uh, has the salt in it, you're not really worried about fluid invasion because you're not swelling and, and you're not having to build that filter cake to prevent, you know, more fluid invasion for, for possible swelling. So is that kind of the reason? Or I mean, because normally like the brines that I've ever ran, you, you're really not worried about about oh, building a, a tight fluid lock?
2: No, I mean, you, you'd basically mud up. And that's sort of where I was going with that is, you know, if you start adding starch and xanthan, you've got yourself a mud mm-hmm. um, with a brine base, granted. But, um, you know, uh, there are formations, obviously, that don't require any fluid loss. They could be, a, a, you know, a shale or a carbonate, something that doesn't have a ton of leak off. You're not at risk of getting stuck. Um, and so, yeah, you know. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> um. But you're obviously you're obviously not paying close attention to that. You're probably relying on turbulence to get the hole clean. Um, you know, you may pump some sweeps every once in a while to see how you're doing, but but generally, um, it, they're they're pretty simple because you're not maintaining any properties to speak of. That makes sense. What would you say
1: is the most important property when running a, a brine that you really need to key in on?
2: Um. Well. The the safe answer is it depends, um, but I, I would qualify if, if we're drilling with a brine system, for example, I would I would probably say pH, um, just because corrosion is a concern. And um, ironically enough, one thing to note is, you know, these these brines are actually really corrosive at like three or four percent. Mm. But as you get higher toward saturation, there's way less dissolved oxygen. The the corrosion risk goes down um, mm. for a number of forms. But, uh, for example, then you pick up the pipe and go rack it back, and if you don't clean that stuff off, um, it really likes water. It will pull water over to your pipe. It is an electrolyte. Uh, it will corrode then. Right. Um, so some of it's even, well, the calcium bromide, while we were drilling with it, didn't hurt us, but my goodness, um, once we stopped drilling and, and racked it back, that's when we got into some trouble. That makes
1: sense, so uh I mean along with while drilling with a brines uh, or even you know in the completion setting your corrosion inhibitors quite uh i mean are they popular in that world
2: oh yes, definitely, and um you know there there's different there's different kinds so you you might actually have your oxygen scavenger along with um, you know something to inhibit uh precipitation uh, like a, a a scale formation scale inhibitor um, and you can use a filming amine, but filmers generally don't work in a dynamic environment. It's more something when you go, you know, lay down your pipe or whatever that you might put it in a bath, that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but corrosion inhibitors are, are kind of the, the key ad. Um, you know, we've got a, we have a brine drilling fluid system called interclear. And the big deal for that is the fact that there are divalent brine compatible uh, corrosion inhibitors uh, because Divalent brine, those calcium ammonium nitrate is a cheaper brine relative to get you the density you want to drill with. Mm -hmm. However, um, the whole knock on it was, well, uh, there aren't any compatible corrosion inhibitors. So once we got those, it made a lot more sense that we could move forward with that at, you know, what we would argue is a, a lower cost than some of the monovalent higher density options. Okay. That makes sense.
1: Uh, I'm, a, I'm pretty aware that there's, you know, companies out there drilling with a, uh, brine systems in the lateral. And we all know now, you know, people are pushing the envelopes with how far they can drill. Um, you know, I would imagine lubricants also play a part, uh, when drilling with brines, especially in the lateral. I mean, is that obviously would be important, Hey,
2: Yeah, um, definitely. And, and, you know, finding one that's, that's compatible, uh, under a number of conditions just by way of, uh you know, cheesing and greasing and some of those things we talked about with lubricants, Mm -hmm. particularly when you have those divalent brines, um, finding something that works, but doesn't cheese and grease. um, You know, there may be some inherent lubricity as you get to higher density um, just because these brines do get a little thicker um, as they get heavier. Um, So uh, definitely in the lateral, you know, to me, that's the big question. Everybody says, oh, could we drill with water-based mud in the horizontal? And it's like, you can. I don't know if you're going to save any money relative to oil-based mud by the time you're done paying for lubricant, mm-hmm. but I'm not saying you couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> right. It's just, it, it, you know, the torque issue is, is significant on the drilling side. Mm. Um, and there are some there are some good additives it's just there is a big difference between drilling with 3% KCl and and saturated brine as far as how well the lubricant's likely to perform and you need to test for that right well if anyone
1: out there is drilling uh with a brine and you know someone has a all of a sudden a fancy dancy cheap lubricant that they want to throw in there do some pilot testing cuz i've heard of horror stories dumping you know lubricants that aren't compatible into a brine based system for or any system for that matter and uh, certainly can cause some detrimental effects, and you know, worst case scenario, you have to displace the whole well bore. So, you know, uh, testing for compatibility is extremely important. And you know, when you know we, uh, you know, design different systems and, and brines included, uh, you know, doing some lab testing certainly and, and some good pre planning is always
2: important. Absolutely, yeah. And and you know, uh, one thing we don't talk about here, but uh, a lot of these places are so anxious to use their produced water or which is a, a brine. Mm -hmm. But there are so many odd cations in those systems. And so it may be, yeah, I'm trying to drill with with produced brine. um, But there are some nasty things in there that uh, I know in the Bakken in particular, um, if you look at produced water in the Bakken, it is some of the nastiest stuff I've ever seen. Yeah, (laughs) Um, And it does not like most lubricants. Um, and even if it does, it doesn't like them for long enough. Um, and when you get a mess on your hands, you hear different stories of, oh, well, we pumped this big solvent spacer to wash out the mess we made. And that's just our SOP. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, 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 s- they seem to try and make it work, but it's, it's a mess.
1: Earlier, you mentioned, uh, being able to, to blend different brines together. I mean, you were throwing out all those, you know, the the calcium bromides and the, you know, the formates and this and that. So why don't you talk about actually, you know, the application of being able to blend different brines together to meet, you know, or design a system fit for purpose. All
2: right. So, I mean, because there's cost and we're trying to control our cost, it may be that I actually want to blend two brines together to get the density I need instead of, it, let's say I take fourteen two brine um, and you can make up the pricing on this or whatever, but Um, And I don't have a list, and we don't sell calcium bromide, so um, uh, email someone else if you have a problem with this. But, um, you know, let's say calcium bromide is 500 bucks a barrel, which probably isn't that far off, at Mm 14.2. Now, to get to a 13-pound, I could add water, right? I mean, that's one way. The other thing I could do is I could add some 11.6 calcium chloride, which is lighter than 14.2, and blend the two together and cut it back. Right. And if you do the math, it's going to be considerably cheaper to blend those two brines together than to just add water. Makes sense. Um, and so there's a lot of, for example, cesium formate is very expensive, but a lot of folks who use cesium formate, they're actually blends of potassium and cesium formate, hmm. and they're kind of sitting around all over the world. So those are those are probably easier to get. Um, and uh, so a lot of times, you know, zinc bromide isn't always. You might send it out as 192 to weight up, but the, your your working system might be a blend of those two. Um, you know, there's other examples where I know folks have used for in, inhibition on some weird mixed clays, like a a 10 pound calcium chloride that had three percent KCL in it. Hmm. And the key is you've got to know, have enough water that all this stuff's going to stay in solution. Right. And if you don't, what happens is the more soluble salt will push the other one out. So if I kept adding. Calcium chloride to calcium bromide, eventually I would get salt on the bottom and it would definitely be calcium chloride and not calcium bromide. Wow. Um, and sometimes when you mix these together and you see salt on the bottom, it's because one pushed the other one out. I um, got gotcha. you. And that's a, a big affinity for that, that affinity for water, um, which actually ties into something else I wanted to bring up. Okay. Um, but I want you to say it. So I learned this
1: word, and I've read it multiple times, but Matt taught me how to pronounce it today. I'm still working on my pronunciation and how many syllables go into a word, so bear with me. But hygroscopy? Beautiful. I got it. Nice. Yeah, so go ahead. Explain that to people. And for everyone out there, uh, yeah, if you can say it right the first time, you get the the virtual gold star.
2: (laughs) Well, I had to say it a lot, and I'll tell you why. The reason I I wanted to tee it up like this is because I had to get very good at saying this word because... If you think about it, let's say I have a 14.2 pound per gallon calcium bromide brine sitting out. Yeah. Let's say I'm working somewhere near the water. That stuff really wants the water that's available to it. Sure. So if I have that agitating in a pit, it's going to get lighter just because it's sitting there. Wow. Um, And you can actually go on YouTube and you can see videos of like time-lapse where calcium bromide is available in a dry salt. You could just leave it on a table, and if you came back a few hours later, it would be in droplets. No way. It would pull that much water out of the air. No kidding. Well, I would
1: imagine the more humid it is, the more su-
2: it's more susceptible to doing that. Sure. So it gets lighter, yeah. um, and then you've got to wait it up again. Um, and the reason that <laughs> I got very good at saying this word was because people get very angry when you add dry calcium bromide to, because it's very expensive. Sure. Um, to wait up and to explain, I didn't do it. We didn't leave a hose running. I promise this just had to happen. It's nature. Yeah. Um, And so even when you, for example, if you're shipping a bulk amount of brine that's like that, you send it out a couple of points heavy knowing one, if you flush all your lines, there's probably going to be some water somewhere. Mm -hmm. And two, um, that this phenomenon is going to take place. So you always wanted to make sure that you didn't show up light because waiting up is miserable. Of course. But then, um, you know, that ties into the safety concern. Um, if this stuff's ready to pull water out of everything, um, it will pull. Your skin included? Yes. (laughs) Um, so, you know, a lot of these brines, even, even, I mean, a lot of us have been around sodium chloride and gotten it on our hands, right? Wash it off. Um, you know, follow the proper safety procedures, you know, beyond that. Of course. But, but it only gets worse from there, gang. Um, it only gets more aggressive where people can get seriously hurt and burned, um, And I I guess the other thing is when you think about them, these ones that really like water have pretty high surface tension. So a drop of that sitting on the deck is like walking on a marble. Mm. Um, So a lot of these operations, everybody's prepared. They've got their barrier creams. They've got all their proper PPE and everything, but they're also hosing off the deck constantly Mm. to make sure that brine doesn't, because just a drop is enough that you could step on it and your feet would fly out from underneath you. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, Hygroscopy, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really likes water. It affects your density. It affects your health and safety in a number of different ways. Mm. Um, and so it's just, it's just an important phenomenon, especially if you're, you're in the high-density completion game, which I don't know how many of us are, but I did it once.
1: Yeah. Well, it's yeah. worth mentioning because you never know who's listening to this. Oh, well, these are fun facts too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very fun fact. And words of the days. Yeah. Yeah. What um... Matt, you uh, mentioned precipitation also. I mean, that's pretty important. Why don't you touch on that point?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, when we use these brines, is, the assumption is that, well, since it's clear, nothing's going to happen. But they can interact with the formation in ways, uh, you know, we, we talked about reservoir drilling fluids, for example, if I have a, a, uh, the, the wrong ions available, um, you know, I have that calcium chloride and it goes into the reservoir and interacts with the formation water and precipitates and turns into a solid, it's going block, to block that production path. Mm. But, you know, we could make this even worse with some of these where salt starts falling out. Um, and, and so when we blend brines, we have to make sure they're compatible. Um, and when we interact with different things like the formation, we need to make sure they're compatible as well. Um, and so you know, for the most part, I'll say the the monovalents are pretty friendly. Sodium chloride, potassium chloride, that kind of thing. Um, calcium chloride, calcium bromide, beware because it can precipitate into calcium carbonate or calcium sulfate. And um, formates, uh they still, the, I mean, the Formate folks, I'll tell you like Formate is a business in and of itself. So there are a couple of companies that like Formate solves all of life's problems if you ask them. <laughs> and in my opinion, they make some pretty outlandish claims. Okay. Some of them, I mean, formates are not bad, right? I, they're, they're a tool in the toolbox, just like a lot of other things we talk about. They're a tool in the toolbox, um, and they work great where they belong. Um, but uh, one thing that's nice about formates, they have an inherently high pH, so they're good for corrosion. Okay. Um, but, the other, but the other thing is, say, uh, I've heard people say, oh, they don't precipitate. It's, I can tell you the number of times I've tested these things and precipitated calcium formate, <laughs> which is impossible to get rid of at least from my, the techniques I had available at the time that uh-huh. um, you got to watch out for that. And you know, formates can be somewhat expensive. So someone would say, okay, well I want to spot a heavy pill of potassium formate downhole. Let's put sodium chloride on top of it. And it's like, well, that interface is pretty much going to look like snow. Jeez. Um, so you you have to use these brines together in the way they work if you're going to do blends. No kidding. Um, so just another another thing to consider. Um, the nice thing is most of this testing you can do with like little jars and just see what happens. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it kind of feels good if you work in a lab because you can do like 30 of these at once and be like, look at all the work I've done. And it really took you like half an hour. <laughs>
1: so. Nice you're you're you uh giving out all your trade secrets
2: yeah and i mean the reports look completely elaborate all those pictures oh, it's yeah. like 15 pages and I'm like whoa some work went into this yeah you earned your dollar today matt <laughs> exactly while you're sitting
1: there twiddling your thumbs or doing whatever while the well you know everyone else is working but no that's it's interesting stuff matt and you know again it's uh you know on land especially it's we're not too familiar with it on the drilling fluid side um you know, in, you know, with regards to the heavier brines, but it's just an interesting topic and I was glad we were able to talk about it. You got anything else uh, to kind of close up shop here before we get, before we go?
2: No, not that I can think of. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, there, there's kind of two schools of, there's the 3% KCL folks and there's the people that are running it at saturation and make, you know, it's really complicated and they both use the word brine. Yeah. Um, and just bear in mind that that can be, that can be a lot of different things.
1: Right. Well, actually, you know, I do have one more thing and this is very basic, um, but I've actually had people ask me, what does the term cut brine?
2: So I honestly, you know, I've just u- used the term, um, and my understanding is that it was just cut back from saturation, but I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no. And um, that's
1: what it was. So, I had, I had uh, actually a, a customer reach out and, uh, had always only drilled with freshwater drilling fluids. And, uh, he just he sent me a text and he said, mm-hmm. Hey, Uh, You know, I was you know BSing with one of the guys here at the office, and we were kind of you know friendly debate on what cut brine meant. And Mm. uh, in this case, we're talking about you know cutting back a sodium chloride brine from ten bound down to about a nine two using fresh water. So uh, yeah, essentially just just cutting it with a lighter fluid um, to bring the density down. And in this case, was what they were talking about. So for anyone out there who's heard the term, that's that's where it comes from.
2: Yeah. Perfect. Oh, awesome. Right there with a the possum belly.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right, folks. Well, thanks again for listening. If you have any questions, again, please support the show or send us an email at AES Fluid or uh, podcast at AES Fluids.
2: Flowline podcast at
1: AESfluids.com. Thanks, Matt. Sorry, folks. It's been a long day and this is authentic. You can see it. So, anyways, thanks again, folks. Appreciate it. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.